Hello everyone and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn whatever I want to learn and then you listen to me talk at you for an hour and sometimes Everett too. Um, I'm Melissa. (laughs) And I'm Everett, who you sometimes listen to. Sometimes. In a minority of times. Yeah, that's okay. Um, So this episode... I know, I know everyone's been waiting with, with bated breath mm-hmm. to hear more history of math. Maths. Right. Or maths. maths. I don't know. Whichever. Okay. Again, I'm going to say just whichever comes to mind. Sure. Um, <laughs> it's the best way to do it. That's the Canadian way. It is. Blending the European and American just into one confusing, inconsistent... Melting pot. Confusion. Yes. I couldn't mm-hmm. think of a word there. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, well, how about you teach me something? Awesome. So I had left off last time, kind of we'd done a bit of the what we consider Western world, and mm-hmm. um, I promised this time I would talk more about the Eastern part of the world, um, and then we'll hit the uh, the New World, as Excellent. it were, as it were. So we'll we'll go to China. Okay. And I'm I'm not. Sure, you'd be surprised to hear that China had to do some math to build the wall. Oh. Okay. I, I mean, you're shocked, right? You're and shocked. Awe. You're shocked that that might have been one of the reasons that China learned math. Yeah. Yeah, they had to build the Great Wall. They did start some of the wall as far back as the seventh century BCE, but the most well-known parts of the wall were built in the Ming Dynasty, which was from 1368 to 1644 CE. So this well, is kind of the time different. that, yeah, yeah. They, they took their time building this wall section by section. China's big. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a long time ago before machines. Yeah. So um, they had a very simple number system that did lay the foundation for the way we count in the West today. They used small bamboo rods and they arranged them in different shapes to represent the numbers one to nine. And that's how they did their calculations. Um, they placed them in columns, basically. Each column was for units, tens, hundreds, one thousands. So they could make, for example, their symbol for nine in, in the hundreds column, mm-hmm. symbol for two in the ten, you know. Um, and the ancient Chinese were the first to use a so-called decimal place value system. Um, over a thousand years later, the West would adopt this style as well. But, uh, I mean, it's what we use today, as you know. Yeah. I'm sure you, you know that we use decimals. <laughs> I was thinking that that was the case. Yeah. But the thing is, the Chinese only use this system to do the calculations, not when they were writing things down. Oh. That's not the way they actually wrote the numbers down. Okay. They use a much more laborious system um, because they didn't have a concept of zero. Okay. So with the rods, they would leave just a blank column for zero. Yeah. But with their writing, they just didn't invent a way to, to like, mark mark zero. They couldn't just leave a space for some reason. Um, I guess it would have just been taken as a space, not a zero. So, like, yeah, they just didn't have this concept of this, and the way they wrote things down took them forever. <laughs> but it didn't stop them from making some pretty big advancements in math. I mean... Um, they use math, well, and numbers for not not only math, but their kind of mysticism aspect um, of some Chinese, like, cultural traditions, religion type of stuff. Like, okay. you know, kind of a numerology. Think of it like numerology. Obviously, sure. 
obviously you probably know that you know four uh is is not a number that is in a lot of chinese buildings right or eight is lucky like that's what i'm kind of talking about they have yeah. just like a, a line with their number system um so they have legends about math i'll tell you some legends so Excellent. The first sovereign of China, the Yellow Emperor, had one of his deities create math in 2800 BCE. Okay. Because he believed... Just commanded it. Yeah. Okay. Because he believed numbers had a cosmic significance. Um, odd numbers are seen as male. Even numbers are seen as female. Okay. Um, they also... The ancient Chinese... Um, <laughs> Have have a few stories about number games and their emperors that are most certainly legend. I mean, they say that they're you know true, but you know what I mean. They're, these are legends. So um, the ancient Chinese have a legend that Emperor Yuan thousands of years ago was visited by a magic turtle that came from the Yellow River. Okay. And on its back was a magic square, three by three, which had the representations of the numbers one through nine. Every row, every column, and every diagonal add up to. You're no. nodding like you remember this from school. No. Oh, we did magic now. Okay. 15. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I don't So know this magic says. square is regarded as having great religious importance, and it shows that mathematically um, patterns were something the ancient Chinese worked with a lot. Um, this is, so this is thought of kind of as like an old version of Sudoku as well, like that they did number games, like they had fun creating these squares. How can we place these numbers? Because they don't have to add up to 15, just the original one did. But magic squares are like a Chinese original game, like Sudoku, that you could just complete. Okay. You know, you like, get a book of them, like, you complete them. In this case, you're just saying that like the square was one, two, three, and the next row was four, five, six, and the next row was seven, eight, nine. And then all the diagonals add up to 15. No, 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 no. Or both the diagonals. The three by three square is made up of the numerals one through nine. Okay. They're not in order. Every row, oh. every column, and every diagonal adds up to 15. That's why it's a game. Like, you have to it's get these. It's a game. Uh, I understand. Okay. Sorry, I thought I was being clear when I was talking about Sudoku and get, you can get well, books of these. The Sudoku and... part was what led me to this, trying to understand that it was a game. Okay. Come on. okay. Well, I'm I sorry now. if I confused you guys as much as I just confused <clears throat> Everett. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We're good. Clearly my fault. Okay. So, <laughs> here is a, here is a, hmm, story. Here's a story. The emperor, I don't know which one, this is in the legend, reportedly gave his mathematicians the instructions they needed to mathematically figure out how he could sleep with all the women in his harem as efficiently and quickly as possible while maintaining all his manly energy. Okay. Um... And also, you know, so keep in mind that your manly energy gets used up over time and you don't want to waste any of the good stuff on the low quality women. I see. Um, was the Classic ph- puzzle. <laughs> was the philosophy, you know, because if you do get someone pregnant, you want it to be one of the higher quality okay. women and your stuff kind of wears out, you know? They knew that. They knew that. Sure. So, <laughs> um, so by the way, the calendar and movement of planets was like super important to the Chinese. So these mathematicians are all astronomers primarily that used math for that and then kind of started working more on the math side. Like, so the astronomy was the gateway here okay. for these mathematicians. Anyways, so the here's gateway the gateway science. Here's I'm like a gateway the, drug. <laughs> yeah. 
Here's the Emperor's Harem math problem, which okay. you can probably, I don't know what it's actually called, but I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a famous math problem. Um, because it's silly, not because it's hard to do the math. Sure. Um, so the advisors based this um, sex schedule on a geometric progression. That's the math at work here. Mm-hmm. In 15 nights, he has to sleep with 121 women. That's a lot. The empress, three senior consorts, nine wives. I don't. I don't know. 27 concubines, mm-hmm. and then 81 slaves. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you see how those numbers geometrically progress? Nine or three, nine, 27, 81. Yeah. Right. So um, there's also, you know, the the yin yang as well. So. Um, the emperor needs to sleep with the most high-value women closest to the full moon when their ying, so that their female energy, would be at their highest to match his yang, his male force. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. I'm following you so far, yeah. Oh, that's it. Oh, okay. I just thought that was a funny example. This is an example of the math that the legend says the emperors gave his royal mathematicians to do. He basically just slept with... Them in exactly the order I said. The first night he slept with the empress. The second night, the three consorts. The third night, the nine wives. And then the next three nights, all the concubines. And then the next eight, like, he he basically eventually has to have sex with nine of them a night when he gets to the slaves. So, that um, sounds rough. Uh, tough job. What can I tell you? Yeah. Yeah. Another example we have of Chinese math, <laughs> uh, quite different example, is a math textbook. Um, probably dates back to around 200 BC, and it's called the Nine Chapters. And it was written to teach civil servants the math around things like wages and trades of goods, taxation, and there's 246 example problems in there. So we can see exactly the way they worked things out. Um, they used a method actually to solve large mathematical equations that didn't actually appear in Western mathematics until Carl Friedrich Gauss rediscovered it in the 19th century. So we're talking Ooh. the 1800s here, yeah. yeah. Took us took us a while in the West to get that one, apparently. Um, there's a relatively abstract concept the Chinese did invent um, around the beginning of the millennium called the Chinese Remainder Theorem. Uh, it's not important that you know what it is, because <laughs> okay. it's, it's just basically like, if we divide a number by this, we have one remainder. If we yeah, divide okay. a number by this, we have two rem- yeah. remainder. Let's figure out what the original number is with these pieces of information. Oh, okay. Something like that. Kind of like more like a, a puzzle at that point. Well, like it's like a way to always do it. Plug this number here, plug this number here, okay. and you'll get the answer. Okay. Kind of thing. And um, uh, that's not so. Like I said, that's not important. The important thing is that like. It was a really complex problem-solving technique, and they eventually started using it to measure planetary movement. Mm. Today, it is still used in internet cryptography. Oh, cool. The Chinese Remainder Theorem. So, yeah, that's cool. Um, by the 13th century, China had over 30 mathematics schools. Um, this is known as the Golden Age of Chinese mathematics. And one of the most famous and accomplished Chinese mathematicians of all time was breaking new ground here. He was, he was on the ball. But not really known for being a nice dude hmm. brilliant but uh, mm. so his name was chinju shao i'm so sorry if i say everything wrong in this episode by the way um he was said to be quote a fantastically corrupt imperial administrator oh 
Fantastic. I love the way that. Well, that's because it's the British. The British. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading you a BBC description, okay? Sure. They love to say things like that. It's so colorful. He was fantastically corrupt. Um, he was fired repeatedly for embezzling government money. He would just do it, get fired, flee to another area of the country, do it all over again. And I mean, kind of burying the lead, but he was also known for poisoning people, like any person mm. that was in his way. Um, yeah, so poisoned and embezzled and. He was in the army for a while. He was a great warrior, but he really loved maths. So he started by solving equations that measured, you know, the world around him is how he put it. And he pioneered the concept of cubic equations, again, because of the world around him, because that's the way we measure volume. So that's yeah. why he kind of really focused on that. He wanted to describe 3D space. Um, so you need cubic equations. Cubic equations, of course, being um, anything where... We, an equation where you have a number to the power of three is what we're talking about with cubic equations. As the highest <clears throat> exponent is the power of three. I could see you, your face. <laughs> well, just it, I know it matters. three dimensions yeah. and therefore cubed. the cube. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, so it was groundbreaking here because Qin Zhu Shao also came up with a way to solve these equations. So not only did he describe them and work with them, he came up with an approximate solution. Okay. His method is complicated, and I don't even understand 100% because math is hard sometimes. So I'm just going to say the, the, the basics of it was that he broke it down, a 3D shape, into smaller and smaller slices to get a more accurate and more and more accurate guess. And so it was a guess. It was definitely approximate. But by the time he repeated the process many times and added a lot of little slices together, he got a very accurate approximation. And I, I feel like um, I'm going to let you take this, Everett. Does that remind you of a thing? Does that sound like a familiar solution to measuring the area slash volume of a complex shape? Yeah, we were talking about that last episode but i don't remember which culture it was that was making everything into a square they would take all the oh yes see i thought you'd instantly click on um click on a future method that the west would say they invented um this is extremely similar to something that isaac newton and gottfried leibniz um would invent in the 17th century called calculus yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see the connection. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Totally. So, um, he, Chin eventually used these techniques to solve equations up to the power of 10, which is like extraordinary oh, wow. complex yeah. math here, but it was all still approximate. Like I said, really good proxies, but he died searching for that way to get a precise answer, which he never could figure out. Um, so what I was trying to get at before there was that China, came up with a very close version of calculus, like very close. And this was in the, you know, that was 500 years before we see the same method in the West. Right. So that's cool. Um, but no one had that precise solution. So we're going to go to India to find it now. Okay. Let's go there. And uh, India itself has a really impressive mathematical tradition as well. Um, like the Chinese, the Indian mathematicians recognize the value of a decimal place, uh, like a place value system. And they were using one by the mid, like third century CE. Okay. 
Um, they, they may have picked up the system from traveling Chinese merchants, or they might have come up with it independently, and we just have no idea which one it is. Sure. I, yeah. Yeah, there's no evidence. Like, there's other cultures that we see an evidence of them developing their, um, their number system. We just don't have any evidence at all of India developing this system. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean anything, <laughs> you know. Sure, just wasn't um, tracked. So we do know that they, mo- we, from that point, we do know they modified and refined the system, and they actually created the ancestors of the nine numerals we use today. They actually look pretty close if you were to Google um, like Hindu numerals. Um, you, would, it, they're pretty cool. Um, but there was still one number missing, and the Indian mathematicians are the ones that are going to introduce the world to it. Um, so the earliest known recording of the numeral zero is mm-hmm. dated to the 9th century C. So that's later in than the 800s. We do think, and by we, I mean people that don't know what they're talking about, mm-hmm. um, that it was in use practically for 100 or more years before this, and this was just the first time it was written. Sure. But again, that's a who knows. Um, so... Most cultures, like we've been talking about, hadn't really touched the subject of zero, but those who had didn't have a a zero as a numeral. They had a zero as a placeholder, as a punctuation, basically. So the Indians are really the first one to recognize that this is a numeral in its own right, and that this is going to open up a whole new world, mathematically speaking. Um, For example, now you could capture extremely large numbers in a really efficient way. but how did the Indians come up with zero? Again, like, who knows? There is some evidence um, that, that cult, it was a kind of a cultural thing because in many religions of ancient India, including, including in Hindi, like this mm-hmm. is, um, the universe was born out of a void of nothingness. And nothingness is the ultimate goal of humanity. Um, I'm so sorry if this is inaccurate. <laughs> I checked a few sources and I was, I, I'm not sure what that means. Nothing. This is, a, but anyways, um, the, the point is that their culture kind of enthusiastically embraced the idea of zero as a state of being. Okay. Um, and perhaps that's why they realized there must be a numeral zero. So they named the new numeral Shunya, the same name they used for the void that the universe was born from. So this word has holy connotations. Because Shunya was the place, the void that God was living in, in his primordial state, before he decided to, quote, become many, because, you know, Hindi is a polytheistic religion, mm-hmm. and create the universe. Right. So it was a void of nothingness, but God was there. But he was primordial, so he doesn't count yet as a thing, I guess. Anyways, you can see how the religion and the math are very linked here. Um, so that might be how they kind of came up with this. Um the concept of zero inspired the discovery of negative numbers. Which makes sense. The it's Indian like the gap between the two. word for them was debts. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> which, which shows you what they pretty much used negative numbers for only was like IOUs and debts in like, you know, the markets. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to buy five cloths from you, but I have <laughs> zero money. <laughs> Okay, minus 18 IOU. Yeah, there's so they pretty much, yeah, I think it's funny that they call it debts. Negative number are called debts. Um, <laughs> so in the 7th century CE, to kind of jump a little back here, because I have to talk about a famous Indian mathematician called Brahmagupta. 
and he came up with a new way of solving quadratic equations. Cool. So, again, quadratic are the ones to the power of two, Correct. things that are squared. Um, he realized, due to this work with negative numbers, that quadratic equations will always have two solutions, one of which could be a negative number. So before we had negative numbers, no one could have understood this property of quadratic equations. They always have two solutions. Um, he went further than that, though. Like He solved quadratic equations with two unknown variables in them, which would not be accomplished in the West until the year 1657. Ooh, so yeah. that's a thousand years later. Um, Brahmagupta was also the first to prove some of the essential properties of zero. He proved what one plus zero equals one. So I, I know this sounds silly, but like he wrote proofs for these things. Like this isn't yeah. just like, okay, you prove one plus nothing is not okay. Good one. Um, one minus zero is one and that one multiplied by zero is zero. But he ran into a big wall when it came to dividing by zero. Oh, shocking. It's a little tough. So division <laughs> After all, is just the inverse of multiplication. So to solve this, he asked himself what number times zero equals one. Yes. And of course, there was no answer to this because they still didn't have all the numbers they needed. And I can hear you saying, what? There's no more numerals. I did not miss one in math class. There's only zero through nine. Conceptually, though. <laughs> It would require a new mathematical concept, is what I've written. Why are you looking at my notes? I didn't, but it's all good. <laughs> that wouldn't come along for another 500 years, so he was out of luck. Um, in the 12th century, Indian mathematician Bhaskara II discovered the answer to the problem. And here's how he explained the solution to 1 divided by 0. Pretend you have a fruit, maybe like a watermelon. Sure. If you like divide watermelon. it in half, you get two pieces. So, 1 divided by a half is 2. If you divide it in thirds, you get 3 pieces. So, 1 divided by a third is 3. And so on and so on. As you divide it into smaller and smaller fractions, you get more and more pieces. Correct. So, in the end, he's explaining that if you logically follow this process to when the numbers are so small, they're 0, basically, you end up with infinity pieces that was his train of thought yes one divided by zero equals infinity yes that's correct and everett's gonna tell a story about a frog mm, yes a frog. because <laughs> i thought it was a helpful concept in explaining because this also was a was apparently a story told by the indians the same one the frog yeah after it's you told me frog. this after well no <laughs> I don't think it's one specific frog, but oh, after George. after you told me about this, I was reading about some of the Indian mathematicians and they told a, a, a similar analogy. So I think it's a perfect analogy to use. Excellent. Uh, well, I don't remember what grade it was, but I do remember being in grade school. And to introduce the topic of infinity, we had been given the homework or the posed the question by our math teacher at the time that there are two frogs on a football field that are going to race. And one of the frogs jumps, it was like, a, call it two yards every time it jumps. And the other frog jumps half the distance remaining. So the first jump, it would jump 50 yards. Then it would jump 25 yards. Then it would jump, you know, 12 and a half yards, continuously getting closer to the end line. And the question that was posed to us was, which frog 
wins the race. And I just remember that being the intellectual concept that we had to go home and mull over, um, which was to me the, I remember the first time really starting to understand the idea of it would go on forever, that this frog that jumps halfway continuously goes into smaller and smaller and smaller fractions, but never crosses the line. Uh, in other words, it approaches the limit of infinity, but never wins the race. That's what you think. Mm-hmm. That's what you think. That, that's it's going to come back to bite you in a few <clears throat> sentences. Okay, fine. <laughs> so this discovery of the concept of infinity was probably one of the most exciting and important uses of the number zero in, in mathematics. Um, C0 is cool. Negative numbers, infinity. But... But here's the thing. So Indian mathematicians also made some really great strides in trigonometry. Apparently, they made more progress, arguably, than even the Greeks. Okay. A major breakthrough happens in the 15th century when Indian mathematician Madhavar is working with something called infinite series. And he says, think about that frog story, which is why I'm glad you told the frog story. Good. I didn't have to. The frog will get to the end in infinity hops. Correct. It will get there. In because, infinity time. And, and infinity is a valid mathematical, con- mathematical concept, and therefore the frog will get there. That is Madhavar's um, supposition. Okay. Um, if you add up all its hops to get to the end which it totally gets to, apparently, conceptually, you are creating a math equation called an infinite series. Basically, like, it's a mathematical proof that after infinitely many jumps, it will reach the end. Which will be 1 or 100%. I'm just saying. He's decided that if we... This is why math, theoretical math, confuses me a little bit, because we all know that nothing is forever. But in math, you can just, it's, it's more of a theoretical thing. Anyways, the point is that infinite series mm-hmm. is an important mathematical concept. Yeah. And this is kind of how he came up with the idea that, you know what he said to himself, you know, it will get there in infinity hops. So I should just add up the infinity hops. And, the- and that sounds like a completely illogical, insane thing for a person to say if you didn't know any better. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? If you're a lay person like me and you hear someone be like, I'm going to add up infinity numbers. I'm like, you can't. That's stupid. That's the point of infinity. Well, but no, in this case, there's a defined container. And so the infinity has to be the sum of the container. I'm I'm not arguing with it. I'm okay. saying it doesn't make intuitive sense to people that don't just get math. Okay. Like, the, the logic of it all is just like, I'm so blown away that some people's brains just be like, can just do this. Sure. It's amazing. Sure, it just sure. intuitively seems odd. Anyways, so the point is that Madhavar <laughs> applied this understanding of infinity, infinity to trigonometry. Okay. He realized he could use the strategy of adding up infinitely smaller fractions to capture the value of pi. Oh. Which, if you don't know what pi actually is defined as is the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. Correct. I feel like I didn't actually know that. I yes. just knew pi was a property of a circle. I didn't really think about what it was. So um, this is a huge win for a mathematician. It was like finding the holy grail, kind of. It's pretty big. 
is what I'm trying to say. He was pretty pretty famous among his peers for such a sure such an imaginative uh, and amazing discovery. So, I mean, to be fair, in the sixth century, so we are we are 800 years. Anyways, an Indian mathematician had estimated the value of pi already at about 3.1416. So mm-hmm. they were getting pretty close. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, but no one had anticipated before Madhavar and before Infinity that pi would be an irrational number. That was the issue, is that nobody mm-hmm. could capture it because no one understood that there were numbers that go on forever. Yeah. And pi is one of those numbers. It is, yeah. It just goes on forever. And not like repeating, just like different digits forever. Yeah, Correct. And, and no one knows all the digits, obviously, because it goes on forever. But people keep discovering more digits. I don't know how pe- they do it, but yeah, math. There's people who continue to... There's people who simply memorize the values of... Or, like, the digits of pi in almost like a, almost like a competitive format where they know, like... Oh, memorize. Yeah, I'm talking about actually people are calculating. Yeah, I understand. I'm just saying, like, it goes so far that there's almost a competition. Well, there's definitely competitions for remembering the most digits of pi. Yeah. Um, Anyways, how do you spend your Saturday night? Okay. So here is how he explained his discovery of, like, how to find the formula for pi. He wants you to picture a number line in front of you. Okay. You know, one, two, three, four gradients between the numbers, right? Sure. Uh, First, take four steps forwards. So you land at the number four. Okay. And then you're going to take four thirds of a step back. Sure. And then you're going to take four fifths of a step forward. Okay. And then four sevenths back and four ninth forward and so on. And you are zigzagging over pi, under pi, over pi, under pi. Right. Getting closer and closer to the true value with every step you take. And after infinity numbers of steps on the number line, you're going to get to pi. Exactly. Yeah. So again, conceptual, maybe not intuitive, but this would be rediscovered by and attributed to one Gottfried Leibniz in the 17th century. But, you know, India got it 200 years before that. Just, you know, you know how it goes. Yeah. There's another Eastern culture that had a great impact on present day maths. um, So much that we still use their numeral system today. Excellent. In the 17th, or 17th, <laughs> 7th century. A little different. Yeah, 7th century CE. A new empire inspired by the prophet Muhammad is going to start spreading across the Middle East. And it eventually expands from Morocco in the west all the way to India in the east. Mm-hmm. There was a actually a school and library in Baghdad called the House of Wisdom that was like a huge success somehow. I don't know how schools could be a success, but apparently just grew really big and really like really big, really fast. Okay. And so they ended up like opening new centers throughout the Islamic empire under this like house of wisdom name. They mm-hmm. franchised, you know, mm-hmm. expanded franchise. Yeah. Um, as well as math. Like they obviously did math at this school and library, but they also studied astronomy, medicine, chemistry, zoology, all that good stuff. Um, the scholars at the House of Wisdom collected and translated uh, many, 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 many ancient texts. It's thought that without them, we would have lost most of them to really? history. Yes. Okay. Um, so they were kind of just recording everything they could for posterity, but um, 
it ended up preserving a vast amount of information about the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Indians. There's doubts how much we would know about any of those cultures without the House of Wisdom. Okay, very cool. Mm-hmm. So in the earlier stages of the Islamic Empire, um, they actually really actively encouraged intellectual curiosity. Um, the Quran stresses the importance of knowledge. And um, at the time, their, their attitude was that learning was required of them by God. Not even like it was an option. Sure. So that's kind of what spurred them to make so many amazing discoveries at that time. Before the empire got a lot more restrictive. Um, so the director of the House of Wisdom in Baghdad was a Persian scholar named Muhammad al-Khwarizmi. And he was responsible for introducing two major mathematical concepts to the West. He was the one who recognized kind of the power of the Hindu numerals and how they sped math up. Um, and then his work became so influential that the Arabic world adopted the numerals in the whole empire. Okay. And now we know them as the Hindu Arabic numerals. So he did, like, they they are slightly different than the Hindu numbers. He's, he's made different changes, but he kind of just popularized the whole thing. Sure. Um, so that's what we use now, Hindu-Arabic numerals. And it's funny because I knew them as Arabic numerals. I had never heard the Hindu part, so that's why I was surprised to learn this episode. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I mean, not just that. I've been surprised by a lot of things I've said. Sure. Just to clarify. Um, Al-Kharizmi also created an entirely new mathematical language called algebra. It was named after the title of his book, Algebra wa al-Makabal. And I'm so sorry. I have no idea how to say that properly. That was my closest guess. And as soon as they're like, yeah, it was named Algebra after his book, Algebra. I'm like, oh my God, that's like, duh. <laughs> I mean, how would you know? But once they said it, it sounds the exact same. Sure. Um, so that kind of translates to apparently a million different things according to Google. I can't believe how many translations of this book title I got that were all different. But hmm. calculation by restoration or reduction or... Reunion of broken parts seem to be the popular translations for algebra. Okay, sure. The title of the book is what I'm translating yeah, yeah. here, but like, I, I guess I'm trying to decide how that applies to my understanding of algebra. Well, um, well, in algebra you have unknown numbers, so yeah. you're reassembling or, or finding from from missing parts. I, I think it makes sense. Okay, okay. There's like a, almost a poetic sense to it. Right. So. so the Indian and Chinese mathematicians had really focused on specific solutions to specific mathematical problems. Okay. And so what algebra was, was not only a new like language, but maybe kind of like a new concept for math because they weren't used to going from the um, specific to the general, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like algebra allows mathematicians to, to make math sentences and math statements that can work no matter which numbers you use. Yeah, so, so we're talking about like concepts that are always true or, or patterns instead of solving very specific problems and then exactly it with was like the same almost numbers. a new endeavor of math. Yeah, here, it's a, a very purpose. different approach. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Al-Kharizmi's biggest breakthrough came when he applied algebra to quadratic equations. Sure. So if you remember, the ancient Mesopotamians had discovered a, a clever method to solve certain quadratic equations. And Al-Kharizmi ended up writing an algebraic proof to show that this method could be applied for any quadratic equation. Yeah. Um, this breakthrough 
he did not he did not come up with the formula, but this is what led to the creation of the basic quadratic formula that I think I memorized um, every you know yeah memorized and forgot that, memorized yeah. and forgot um, you know x equals well actually I used negative b plus or minus the square root of four ac plus b squared over two a, but Wikipedia has a slightly different version just in general a way to use whatever numbers appear in the equation and just plug them into a formula and get the two solutions correct yeah so the next mathematical holy grail was to find a general method to solve all cubic equations it was 11th century persian mathematician omar Khayyam. oh god that's my best try okay who finally cracked the problem now Khayyam is most well known in the western world for his poetry he wrote great epic poetry. Um, it was collected and translated under the name The Rubaiyat, if you've heard of The Rubaiyat. Um, um, I had sure definitely I heard of it before this. Okay. Didn't really know what it was besides an old book. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's very famous poetry. If you liked poetry, you would probably know it. Fair enough. Okay. Is, what I, is what I gathered. So as was common in medieval times, he was a polymath. He was an expert in astronomy and mathematics and poetry maybe because because he wrote it no that's the thing that's not including the maybe then i did more research on this guy and i learned that there's like a significant skepticism about the authorship of the poems in the rubaiyat because he didn't publish them together he just like wrote poems apparently and someone in like the 1800s or 1700s collected them all in this book named the rubaiyat yes oh and a lot of people, it's like Shakespeare. They're like, maybe he wrote some of them, but not all of them. And maybe they're just all attributed to him. Or maybe he just didn't write any of them. <laughs> maybe it was just some guy who put his name on things that, of people that he owned. I don't know. Anyway, so there is, like, who knows? But we're a lot more sure about what he did in math. Okay. We know this. He was devoted to discovering this, you know, solution to cubic equation. Um, he, he realized that there are several different types of cubic equations. He was the first to describe the types. And then he kind of got stuck. He got stuck on geometry. Sure. Oddly enough. He was super influenced by like the Greeks, the geometric heritage. They, they thought geometry was important. So he kind of just thought they must have been right. And he couldn't seem to se- like separate algebra from geometry. Because um, apparently one of his problems was he just refused to consider equations of a higher power than three, because that would describe a geometric object in more than three dimensions. Right. And he was sure that was impossible. I, yeah, I understand how that would be a mental barrier, sure. So it actually was 500 years before anyone found a general solution to cubic equations. And so we're going back to the West. Okay. We're going to go back to the West now. Europe, while all of this Eastern math um, was happening, was going through a pretty major anti-intellectual phase that we call the Dark Ages. Now, the Dark Ages started in the 5th century CE with the fall of Rome and continued until at least the 10th century or as late as the 13th century, depending on who you ask. However, while researching, I found out that the term Dark Ages has very much fallen out of favor. Really? It is now seen as pejorative and biased and makes it seem like everything was really backwards and violent and regressive for 500 years. And apparently this is a mischaracterization and historians just think we should not use this term at all, um, let alone argue about when it should be applied to. It should be thrown out and things weren't so bad and why do we 
focus on only the bad thing. Anyway, so I don't know anymore. Interesting. Okay. Let's just say no math that was cool was happening that we know of. So we're going to call it the no cool math The no era. cool math ages. Ages. Okay. Yeah. Coined here. Um, so we'll show up in Italy at a time when Europe is emerging from the not cool math no ages. cool, not oh, not. No, sorry, sorry. No sorry, cool no. math ages. You're correct. That would imply that they were doing <clears throat> math. That it just wasn't cool. That's right. Instead of n- no math. Right. Okay. So it's the 13th century. Good. We're in the 1200s. Yeah. Led by Italy, Europe is starting to explore and trade with the East now. We are globalizing, which is spreading the Eastern knowledge and all that stuff they already know to the West and. It was the son of a customs official that would become Europe's premier medieval mathematician. Cool. As a child, he traveled around North Africa with his father. So North Africa, as you know, Morocco and Tunisia, like a lot of um, Arabic areas Mm -hmm. that they would have seen maybe the mathematics. And definitely he learned about the Hindu Arabic numerals. Great. He was so inspired when he returns to Italy that he writes a book. It's going to be hugely development, uh, influential to the development of Western math. And that son's name, Albert Einstein. I'm just kidding. It's no, not. It's good. It's yeah. not. <laughs> just kidding. His name is Leonardo of Pisa. Oh. Um, better known as Fibonacci. Oh. Right? That was a cool reveal. That was Drop a cool that reveal. Bomb yeah. That you know it was going to be someone famous. I mean, obviously they'd be famous. Right. <clears throat> famous to us is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So his book was full of excitement about how easy and revolutionary this <clears throat> Hindu Arabic numeral system was. Pardon me. Um, but, you know, as with all big changes, it was mostly met with suspicion. Well, and a sequence of things would get us there. <laughs> so like another paragraph. Can you not just... <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Get I'll ahead just, of me with your, with your math puns. Um, so the authorities just didn't trust these numerals. Some of them believed they would be easy to tamper with and would leave too much room for fraud. I, I don't know why they would think this. Here's the, here's the real reason. Here's them saying the quiet part out loud. M- most people were worried that these new simple numbers would make math too accessible to everyone. Those yeah. dirty pores. They, they thought that was a real bad thing. Um, the masses would be empowered, taking authority away from the intelligentsia, you see. Yeah. And the intelligentsia were and should be the only ones who knew how to use the old sorts of numbers. So we can't, you know, let the underlings know math. <laughs> they might do stuff with it. Um, the city of Florence banned... <laughs> Hindu Arabic numerals in 1299. Really? For a while. They were, they were not wow. on board. <laughs> so eventually resistance did wear down. Um, out with the old Roman numerals. Yes, they were still using Roman numerals for math. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. Of course they couldn't Ouch. figure anything out. <laughs> um, we can't discuss Fibonacci without, as Everett was pointing out, mentioning his sequence. Hmm. Shocking. We, we, we really have to. It would be really, it would be shocking if I did not mention it. It's true. So here's apparently the origin story for how he came up with the Fibonacci sequence. Um, I tend to think this one's probably apocryphal. I don't think this is actually how it happened, but apparently someone just asked Fibonacci to solve a riddle. 
They're like, hey, Fibonacci, what's the answer to this riddle about the mating habits of rabbits? Oh, okay. You, you didn't see that coming, no, did you? No, you're, you're taking me on a sequence of events I did not expect. How is this the second major math problem in this episode to be about mating? I don't important. know. Right? I guess it's what else do you do math about? Um, they didn't have TV. Fibonacci was told this information. Okay. A farmer has a pair of rabbits. So far logical. His rabbits take two months to reach maturity. Hmm. If the original pair of rabbits produces two offspring a month, every month after they reach maturity, of course, how many pairs of rabbits will there be in any given month? How can you solve this, basically? So you're going to have one in the, one pair. So it's by numbers of pairs, not numbers of rabbits. That's, that's important. Okay. You're going to have one pair in the first month. Mm-hmm. The second month, they're still not mature. So you're still just going to have one pair. Right. The third month, you've got your original pair, and now you have a baby pair. Mm-hmm. Two. The next month, the original rabbits have another set of babies. Mm-hmm. Three. The next month, the first set of babies starts having babies. Along with the original one. Right. And so, you know, you get one, one, three, five, eight. No, I missed. I missed two. One, one, two, two one, three, three, five, eight. Anyways. Fibonacci realized, apparently, the number of rab- pairs of rabbits you have is equal to the sum of the pairs you had in the previous two months. Correct. Uh, and and <laughs> I do want to say, if the story is apocryphal or not, that it does kind of really illustrate the old adage of of copulating like bunnies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the Fibonacci numbers are found all over nature, this, this sequence yep. of numbers. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing because it really does prove that math is a inherent property of the universe. Like it's, it's yeah. a very powerful reminder that like, unlike every other language in the world and everything humans have invented, this is, this is inherent. This is not a, this, this, is, not this is a science. A... Math is a science. It's a yeah. property of the universe. It's not, and it's a universal language like no other, which sounds super nerdy to say, but it's cool. Um, so I just want to tell you a few cool places you can find the Fibonacci sequence. Um, flower petals. You probably knew that one. Yeah. Branches on trees. Okay. Make, makes sense. Yeah. Pineapple segments. Oh. Snail shells. Sure. Artichoke florets. Yeah. Uncurling fern. Like branches, basically. Those little... Like the number of like leaves that are on the fern? Uncurl, like curling and uncurling branches. The numbers of branches, apparently. Okay. Um, pine cones. Yeah. Sunflower seeds. Like on the sunflower. Yeah. Um, and the parentage of male honeybees can be described by the Fibonacci sequence. <laughs> it's a, okay. It's, a, it's an odd one. Sure. It's an odd one. Okay. So... I promised that we'd talk about the general solution to all cubic equations. Um, this was discovered at the University of Bologna. Bologna? Bologna. Bologna? 
Definitely not baloney. I'm pretty oh. clear that we say that word wrong. <sighs> Fine. Bologna. I'm so sorry, Italians. <laughs> now, you've offended everyone this podcast. Um, not quite, but I'm sure we'll get there. Uh, this was an extremely prestigious mathematical center at the time, like really amazing. It drew the best and brightest minds from all over Europe, and and it was here they invented a new type of spectator sport, the mathematical competition. Mm. They turned it into a sport, like a quiz bowl type of type of sure, thing. Like sure. they would, large audiences would gather to watch them challenge each other with numbers. It's just you know, just what you did. Like I said, they didn't have TV. Yeah, um, it was either copulation or not TV. So. Yeah. The stage is now set for a mathematician called Tartaglia. I like that name. That wasn't his actual name, though. Oh, that's Um, disappointing. And if you speak Italian, you're probably giggling because you know what that means. Um, It was a nickname, and it meant the stammerer. Okay. Because that's not, I mean, it's not really nice to tease someone about their stutter, but um, it's extra not nice if you consider how he developed his speech impediment. Um, at the age of 12, he was slashed across the face with a saber by a French soldier. Oof. And uh, he survived with a really disfiguring facial scar, which affected his speech. So it was really, really mean that he's just known forever as the stammerer. Yikes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So naturally, you know how kids are. He was picked on and excluded by all his schoolmates. Um, and that kind of drove him into an obsession with math because he had no friends, um, as these stories often go. He found a formula to solve one type of cubic equation. Was then able to work out a general formula for all types. Another Italian mathematician was claiming he'd also found a solution at the same time. Wow. Oh. What luck. Yeah. What suspense. So they should have a math. Math off. A math competition at the University of Bologna. 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 Um, I mean, legend has it Tartaglia wins this competition. His solution worked for all types of problems. But he didn't have that solution until the night before. Oh. He figured out that one type and then said he figured it out. And the other mathematician was like, okay, I'm going to challenge you to this other type of whatever. And somehow the night before, he finally invented the exact thing he needed to win the competition. Hooray, roll credits. I'm not certain this story is true either. But um, to the victor go the history books. True, yeah. So... (laughs) This is a big news. This contest was big news. And a very successful mathematician named Cardano heard all about it from across the country. And he begged Tartaglia to just reveal his solution to him. And Tartaglia is probably just happy to have a friend or someone talking to him. It's like, sure, I'll share. But you have to promise not to publish it. Keep it a secret. Which, Which also I think is silly. It's science. You need to share your discoveries with the world. Yeah keep them secret um cardano apparently intended to keep this promise until his student ferrari gets a hold of it and went too fast apparently ferrari was so inspired by this solution he was able to solve the general formula for any fourth order quartic equations to the power of four so cardano decides oh i can't deny you of your success ferrari and to publish your solution, I have to publish this other one. And Tartaglia never recovered and died penniless. And to this day, the solution is known as the Cardano's formula. Ouch. Womp womp. 
Sad ending. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to kind of break this chronological order thing I had going. Um, no, actually, I'm going to shatter it. Okay. We're going to go back to before the common era again. Ouch. We're going to uh, go to the Americas. Okay. And we're going to talk about maths of indigenous people in the Americas. Um, so many, many people say that because indigenous societies had no system of writing, that their societies were then technologically, technologically primitive and undeveloped. And, you know, this is obviously not true as like different doesn't automatically equal worse. Right. Um, but that's the assumption. And, and at least part of it's true, which is, it, it is very different the way math developed, um, in the different areas of the world. Um, one clear implication of, of not having written language is it's going to make it harder to build complex systems like the math we saw in other areas. I mean, as any science, like big discoveries need a lot of data and a lot of work and a lot of being wrong and a lot of that kind of stuff. And um, if you don't have the written word, you're not hearing about what everyone else is doing and you're not hearing about what people really far away are doing. Um Throw that with, you know, population size. Mm -hmm. Like when you have big populations that mix and blend and share ideas together, like all the different cultures um, in Europe and the East, you're going to kind of get, I want to say progress, um, but I don't really know. The indigenous peoples just weren't trying for that. They only they use math in the way that they use math, and that was all that they ever really desired of it, is sure. what I'll say. They were practical. Religion might have also played a role, I think, like the types of religions. Sure. Um, and maybe the type of religions kind of influence what a culture will explore. Maybe the indigenous people had a more natural-based religion, and they explored the world like around them more in the physical sense instead of the theoretical sense. But I'm going to share an example of mathematical technology that was actually the original inspiration for this whole History of Math miniseries. Again, thank you to Keith, my father-in-law, for suggesting we talk about the kipu. So these are recording devices made of strings. Um, historically, they, it, or they, I can't quite tell if kipu is supposed to be the plural and the singular. I think it is. Okay. I think kipu may have originated as early as the third millennium BCE. Oh, wow. May, yeah, with an ancient culture called um, Norte Chico, which is the oldest known civilization in the Americas. Okay, um, and that's uh, down in in kind of mid South America. Sure. Um, the oldest ones that we've confirmed, though, have been like the first millennium CE. So uh, this is a this is an issue of decomposing materials, again, that we had right. with the papyrus. Like, these things are made of natural fiber. They don't last long, necessarily. Yeah. Um, so they're definitely used by a number of cultures in Andean and South America. But most famously, and the ones we know most about are from the Incans. So that's the ones I'm going to talk about. Um, so they were used as accounting devices by the Incans, both in, like, a pure inventory and counting sense and in, like, data and record keeping, like, tax obligations and census records and calendars and military organization, that type of thing. Um, so they're made of strings that use knots to represent numbers. So the name kipu is taken from an indigenous, a di indigenous, oh man, it's tongue twister, word meaning knot. Okay. 
Think of a think of it like the head of a string mop. That's kind of what it looks like, <laughs> with different knots and lengths of of cords and stuff. Um, the strings themselves are made of cotton or camelid hairs. It's like camelids, like like a llama or an alpaca or a guanaco. Sure. All those things they had there. They used. Um, they can be made with a few cords or a, a thousand cords. Okay. Um, there's archaeological evidence that they may have actually used carved wood as like a sturdy base to attach the cords to, but that we don't necessarily know if that's Again, true. Decomposing <laughs> materials makes it tough to, right. to understand. So in Incan times, they're made by specialized craftspeople called the um, Kipuka Mayox. And they were the only ones that could read it. Oh, okay. And that's an issue because when they died off, they took their knowledge with them. Right. Yeah. So as more and more of these, though, started to be found by archaeologists, it's like code breaking. Scientists were able to learn more and more about what they meant and how to read them. Unfortunately, relatively few have been recovered. Like, we know they use a lot of them, and we've we found, you know, hundreds, but that's not many. Yeah. Um, there's a main cord, and then you have H cords attached to the main cord, and B cords attached to the H cords. Okay. That's the makeup, the basic makeup of a kipu. Um, they don't really generally knot the main cord whatsoever. They knot the H and the B cords. Um, so basically the positions and types of knot, the positions on the strands and the types of knot are going to tell you um, the values. So like we don't know what a ton of the different stuff on the kipus mean, but we know what how to translate the numbers at least. Um so, for example, there's three types of knots that each represent a different value. The Incans actually used a base 10 decimal system as well. Okay. So, each knot had a specific decimal value. The single knot was tens, hundreds, thousands, and ten thousands. Okay. Um, they put those knots on the upper levels of the H chords near the main chord. Um, the figure eight knot was used to represent one. Okay. And the long knot was used for all the other integers, two through nine. So the long knot is like, just think about um, just wrapping a string around the cord. The number of times the rope round, round, like wraps around the cord is the numeral. Okay. So if yeah. you get three turns around the main cord, that that's the numeral three. Okay. So they put the ones closest to the bottom. The tens right above them, the hundreds, and as I said, tightly close to the main knots, like the, the biggest numbers. So um, that's the basics of how you do it, like decode a number on a kipu, the type of knot and the location of the knot and the value system. So it, it's pretty pretty good, pretty easy to understand, I think. Um, some of the knots and other features like color, like there's, they think they represent some non-numeric information. We don't know yet what the colors might mean. Um, one of the use of the kipus was like chiefs figuring out which province had lost more than another and balancing losses between them after the Spanish invaded. That's something they would use kipus for. Um, in the early years of the Spanish conquest of Peru, um, Spanish officials used kipus to settle disputes over local tribute payments or like stuff like that. And they would actually summon the kipu kamayox to court and use their them as an expert witness of their bookkeeping. Okay. That was the valid documentation the courts would, would recognize of payments. Cool. Um, 
I mean, there's a lot of other cool things, but I'm going to run out of time talking about all the cool things about the, the quipus. Um, but I do want to kind of talk about some traditional indigenous mathematics that might be more close to home, like North American um, indigenous people. So most, um, most tribes had pretty sophisticated counting systems. And you can also see like their grasp of geometry and their construction and in their and their art. That's kind of um, as much as they they pushed it. Um, as we touched on earlier, there's there's no written language. Things are only passed on through the oral tradition. And just like you know, this is exactly what happened to the Incans. I mean, if everything's passed down orally, and then all of a sudden there's like I don't know genocide. Yeah. Um, disease, You're bound to lose a lot. Disease that's going to run rampant through your whole population and kill everyone. There's, you know, tribes that just didn't have the opportunity to pass down any of this stuff. So um, we just don't know a ton. Um, but let's speak in some generalities. So indigenous counting systems were usually based on human anatomy. So the Zuni tribe, for example, counted the first five numbers on their fingers and the second ten on their knuckles. Um, the Yuki tribe had a base eight system, and they counted by using the number of spaces between your fingers, four spaces on each hand, base eight. Um, the Inuit traditionally used a base five kind of base 20 system combined, and they used like their fingers and toes to get to 20. Um, and, and the vocabulary that they used showed us that they did basic arithmetic, like adding, subtracting, and multiplication, sometimes division. Okay. In some areas. Um, so, like, for example, a lot of tribes formed numbers by using arithmetic. Like, the actual word meant that. So, think of French. If you say 99 in French, you're going to be saying 99. Mm-hmm. So, you're, you're, you're literally saying 420s 10-9. Or 420s 19, if you want to be. But... Yeah. Uh, so that is, that's literally an arithmetic statement. That's not a number. That's an arithmetic statement. Four times 20, add 10, add nine, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, s- same thing in a lot of indigenous counting systems. You would, instead of saying seven, you would say two more than the hand, for instance, if your hand is five, if you're using okay. one, of those, one of those systems. Um, cool. The Pawnee tribe used division language to get smaller counting numbers, like think they would use a word for half of 20 instead of to mean 10. Instead of actually having a number 10, they would use half of 20. Um, only a few tribes that we know of in North America use division language like that. And, and we're not sure many others had that concept. Sure. Um, so we do know that many, many indigenous cultures had the capability in their number systems to count very, very large numbers. But it seems like that's kind of as far as they went. They didn't manipulate numerals. Um, all math was just practical. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, we were able to see a lot of geometry in the art, like basket weaving and textiles. They're decorated with geometric shapes and patterns. There's like a lot of constructions like bent wood boxes where it's a whole piece of thin wood that you're bending to create something. And so you've got to be able to take accurate measurements and do some calculations and, and, and know how to build these things. So we know that they could do things like that. And it's fascinating. Um, and, but besides art, geometry was used to create their buildings. I mean, if you want a perfect circle, like the base of a teepee, they basically used a compass style method. They just put a stake in the center and tied a rope to it, tie a stick to the other end of the rope and drag it in the dirt, Mm -hmm. just like we would use a compass. Um, 
to make a square base instead, they had to do a little more work. And it's kind of complicated. I can do my best to describe it. <laughs> Possibly Everett can help me. Um, the, the gist of it is they're going to use trigonometry. They're going to make a triangle to build a square. Well, they're going to make multiple triangles to build a square. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say they, they stake two corners and put a rope between it. That is the length of one of the sides of the square. Let's call that side A. Side A. Then what they're going to do is they're going to take that rope, which measures the length of the side. They're mm -hmm. going to fold it exactly in half and mark the midpoint. Right. So now they have the exact All midpoint right. of the side. Yeah. Yep. Then they're going to tie another rope on side A. So side A has a rope now, and you also have a rope with a marked midpoint. All right. What you're going to do is use that rope with a midpoint to put another stake Mm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm describing this properly. You're going to use the midpoint to make a perpendicular line to side A. Yeah. So I think the, the one thing that needs to be mentioned here is that in side A, they can now stake the exact middle of side A. And so now side A actually has uh, a stake at the corner, the other corner, and right in the middle. Yeah, that's what the midpoint was for. Correct. Yeah. And so... So now they, they know that they have, we have a big capital T here. We've got side yep. A and perpendicular to that. We've got another length of rope. And we knew it's, it's the in the length. exact middle. Yeah. And we knew it's in the exact middle. Anyway, so the point of all of this is that we already know the side length we need to make a square. Mm -hmm. That part, you could just use four of the same ropes. But we need to make the angles perfect. We need Correct. to have a square with four 90 degree perfect angles. Mm -hmm. um, and so now we have this big capital T and we've got side A as that big top bar of the T. Mm -hmm. We need to go to that stake that's on side B. We don't have a line. The middle there. of the side B now. Yeah. yeah. But we need to get it into the exact uh, perfect spot on side B. That, that part's not what we're worried about. We're tying two ropes to that stake that, that, that's at the other end of our T. And we're going to stretch them to side A. We want them to meet up with those two original stakes that we stuck in there. And what the indigenous people would basically just use guessing and testing to find the perfect length of rope. But the really crucial point is these two lengths of rope are the exact same length. Mm -hmm. Because we're creating an isosceles triangle. Correct. Side A is the base of our triangle. The long part of the T, that's, that's the height. Mm-hmm. And then we're taking that, that tip and stretching two ropes off of it, and we're going to make a triangle. And that allows us to make perfect 90-degree corners. We flip it around, do the same thing to the other side, and then we just use our length of rope to complete the square. So I know that was a bit of a complicated um, description. It's really hard without a visual aid. Um, but just in general, they were able to create perfectly square bases for their constructions. And it was observational. They definitely didn't know any equations or, or why things were working. And they definitely did a lot of guessing and testing. But it's pretty cool to see what they could what they could do with it. Um, and now I have to stop talking about math because I'm boring your pants off. Because no one can listen to that for more than an hour. An hour is probably perfect. So, so we talked for seven minutes too much about math. I don't think so. But that's okay. Okay. Keep going. Oh, good. I mean, that's all I have to say. I was just saying we're done talking about math now to the relief or dismay 
of some people. Probably just me. Obviously. I I thought it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What about you? Yeah. I, well, I mean, I love math and science, so I may not be the exactly. correct audience to ask. Um, as for next episode, I don't know. It's a mystery. If anyone has any questions that they <laughs> anything that he suggests, I'm cool with it. But I do have a list, and so you'll be surprised. Perfect. All right, I guess that wraps us up. So I want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.